0: which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. It moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, and welcome to Law Technology Now, have a wonderful guest today and a very compelling information that we're going to talk about. And it's Judge Shira Shenlan, who I suspect many of you are very, very familiar with. Welcome to our show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So you have been instrumental in creating a new organization called the American Immigrant Representation Project. Can you tell us a little bit. Actually, before I have you answer that question, for the two or three people who might not know you, could you tell us a little bit about your background and and what you've been doing in the judiciary?
1: Sure. Um, I'd be happy to do that. In 1994, I was appointed by President Bill Clinton to be United States District Judge in the Southern District of New York. I'm sure your listeners know that's the trial court, federal trial court uh, located in Manhattan. I sat on that court for the last 22 years, had a wonderful experience and had the opportunity to work on a number of cutting edge issues, including one in which I got to know you, which is the world of e-discovery. But I also got to work with some very big systemic change cases, such as uh, the challenge to New York City's stop and frisk program which pretty much ended with my decision in Floyd versus the city of New York. And I also had a major case involving solitary confinement and the conditions of solitary confinement in the state of New York have been revised completely because of my decision. So I've had wonderful uh, cases in my 22 years on the bench, but I decided uh, after that amount of time to step down because I wanted to be able to be more active in the community, which is what we're going to talk about today, but I also hope to be able to write and to speak on many issues that are important to me and have been doing that. And so I wrote a piece uh, last May for the New York Times about the role of the trial courts in the federal judiciary. Uh, Then just a week or two ago, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post about the criminal justice system and mandatory minimums and how they distort the people that are in prison and cause us to end up with mass incarceration because of the mandatory minimums. So I've had a chance to speak out on a number of issues that have concerned me since leaving the bench. I'm now uh, both in private practice, but more importantly, working as a mediator and arbitrator with JAMS. So I think that brings us to the current moment. And now I'm happy to turn to my more recent work if you're ready for that.
0: I am, but I suspect that you might want our folks to know that you're at, at and you will you pronounce it for me, Struck Is that the correct way? Sure.
1: So the law firm is Strick and Struck and Levan, and I'm of counsel there. But as I said, my primary work is with JAMS, which stands for Judicial Arbitration and Mediation Service, where I do work as a mediator and arbitrator and also work as a mock trial judge. So that's my current employed side. Excellent. Uh, And now we can turn to what I consider the pro bono side, which is of equal, if not greater importance.
0: Yes. And as I started to say in the beginning and then stopped myself, please do tell us how the American Immigrant Representation Project got started.
1: Thank you for that opportunity. I'd actually like to tell that story. After the election in November, I know a lot of lawyers were thinking to themselves, what can I do to be active now? There's going to be changes coming from Washington. Some of those changes uh, may not be things that we agree with. And how can we become active? And when I thought about it for myself, very personally, I thought, well, the area that I think is going to need the most attention is immigration defense work. Because during the campaign, the then candidate said that he really intended to uh, ramp up sort of a war against immigrants, and he would uh, seek to deport millions of people, and he would seek to target Muslims, and he would seek to close our borders and to be rid of people he considered dangerous. And there was a lot of rhetoric in the campaign. Of course, we couldn't know uh, what would happen if he actually became the president. Would he actually carry these policies out? That's something we couldn't know, but that was the campaign rhetoric. So once he was successful and became the president-elect... This is the area I decided to focus on. So I, together with a few, very few lawyers in New York, uh, decided that we would build an organization, which we named American Immigrant Representation Project. And the purpose of the organization was to seek volunteers from big law firms in large numbers. And those volunteers, we would hope to fund by fundraising. And then we would hope to deploy them to actually do removal defense work at detention facilities on a national scale. So, for example, some cities have very robust defense programs. For example, New York City does, again, because of an initiative from a judge, uh, Judge Katzman of the Second Circuit, Judge Robert Katzman, stimulated the bar to found a project here that has helped New York City to provide lawyers to represent people in removal. So New York City's in good condition, and now Governor Cuomo of New York State is starting a project called the Empire State Project to work on removal defense, but that's just New York. In the other 49 states, uh, some have programs, but many don't. So that was the idea of the American Immigrant Representation Project, was to marry the forces of big law, funding from big law and from outside funders like businesses and foundations, and then to deploy lawyers to detention facilities to help people in removal proceedings.
0: And I had the great pleasure of writing an article about your project uh, for Above the Law, and I was very impressed by the group of people that you got to start your organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Faith Gay, um, Michael Patrick, uh, Marjorie Pierce, if I'm pronouncing that right, right, and Lenny Benson?
1: Sure. Those are the executive committee. We've actually formed a steering committee, which is now up to approximately 30 people. And I would like to tell you about the steering committee. So the names that you mentioned were the original Brain Trust, and we now call ourselves the executive committee of the steering committee. Faith Gay is a partner at Quinn Emanuel. She's an amazing woman, super energetic, busy all the time. But she's thrown herself into this project. Uh, She has many friends in big law has been very instrumental in providing their names so that we can approach them to participate. And the good news is we already have 30 firms that have decided to join the project and to give us volunteers. We've also raised more than $350,000 already and growing, I hope, daily. And Faith has been very, very active in that end. Professor Lenny Benson is another another remarkable woman. She works around the clock. This is her field. She's the only one of the five of us who really specializes in immigration law. She's a professor of law at New York Law School, and she's in charge of our subcommittee on training. So what she is working on now is preparing training committee, I'm sorry, training materials for our volunteers. She will produce reading lists that they can start reading soon, and then eventually she is collecting videotaped training materials from many organizations, including her own, and that will be the training materials that will help our volunteers go forward. Uh, The other members of the executive committee, uh, Marjorie Piercy, she's a specialist in criminal defense work, and that's very important because our original focus was going to be on folks who are in removal because they have a prior criminal conviction. And we'll talk about that more during this podcast. But for now, I just want to say that while that doesn't initially sound attractive to represent somebody with a prior criminal conviction, I must point out that we're not talking about rapists and murderers as the president is talking about. People can have very minor criminal convictions like you know a turnstile jumping or uh, an identity theft or driving under the influence or even an open container standing in in a line with a uh, a beer bottle in a brown bag so some so called criminals are really people who, when they were young, made a small mistake, maybe a very small amount of marijuana in their pocket or whatever the type of crime is. But I want your listeners to understand that when I say prior criminal conviction, I'm not talking about those subgroup who have serious felony convictions like murder and rape. That's a very small percentage of those with prior criminal convictions. So anyway, back to Marjorie Piercy. Because she's an expert in criminal defense law, she's very helpful to this project because part of the defense will eventually be to look at those convictions and analyze whether they can, whether there's anything about them that they really don't, they should be expunged or they're really just a misdemeanor or a minor misdemeanor or it was a youthful offender. All of that might be a defense to removal. So that's her role. The fifth member, Michael Patrick uh, was also a, a expert in immigration law. He practiced for more than 30 years in the field of immigration law. He was with the U.S. Attorney's Office as their expert uh, in immigration and law, and then he joined the Fragman Law Firm, which is a leading law firm in immigration work. So that's a quick sketch of the five members of the Executive Committee. But now we're up to maybe 30 members. And I will just very briefly, I won't go through every name, but I just want to describe the 30 for a minute. We have partners from nine big law firms. I counted this morning from nine big law firms on the steering committee. And they're on the steering committee to show that big law is supporting this project. The other members of the steering committee are representatives of many, if not all, of the nonprofit organizations that do immigration defense work, uh, such as the National Immigration Project of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, the Immigrant Justice Corps, the Southern Poverty Law Center, etc. I'm sure I've left somebody out. The ACLU. But the point is, we've tried to gather all of the many groups that do already. Uh, defend people in removal proceedings around the country. And the only other member I'd like to give a special shout out to is we also have Monica Enand, who's the CEO and president of ZapProved, which is a legal tech support company. And she just volunteered. She said, you know, I was speaking at one of their events and she said, I'd love to help. And they've been terrific in providing tech support, such as creating a logo, creating a website. She's also reached out to others in the tech field to see if they'll help fund our project. So that's our steering committee, big law entities that do this kind of work. And then Monica Enan of Zapproved, who so helpfully um, is assisting us in this work.
0: Were there other reasons, Judge, that Made you so inspired to want to address this topic?
1: Well, I think my own personal background uh, comes into play here. I'm the daughter of immigrants myself, and as a judge on the court, every two or three months, each judge gets a turn to swear in new immigrants at a naturalization proceeding. And so you would swear in 250 or 300 new immigrants every few months, and you made a speech. And in that speech, I talked about what it means to be a new American, what it means to be the daughter of immigrants, that both my father and my stepfather came from abroad, one from Russia, one from Germany. And I know the history of this country has been that we've always accepted immigrants. We've built our society on immigrants. Immigrants have made such a difference in this country. I know that recently many of the tech companies joined an amicus brief uh, to the Ninth Circuit when there was a fight over the president's new executive order. And they pointed out that 40% of their CEOs came from abroad. They were immigrants to this country. So immigrants have been our history. We have the Statue of Liberty for a reason. We welcome immigrants. And this was all in my own personal background and meant a lot to me. And the thought that we want to close our doors to immigrants and we want to exclude certain people, we want to get rid of certain people, this really troubled me personally. It, it called out to me, uh, given my own history, my own feelings about immigrants. So I, I hope that answers your question in a different way.
0: I completely resonate with what you're saying, because I come from a family that immigrated also Mine was probably one level longer than yours, but it was very, very obvious to me how important that was. I'm also the daughter of an airline pilot, and I mm-hmm. had the great experience at a very, very young age to travel all over Europe, and mm-hmm. that was something that really, really affected me and and shaped who I am, too. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I completely resonate to what you're saying about that. right. right. So... The first steps you've talked about, what's next? What has to happen and how can how can our listeners get involved with what you're doing with AIRP?
1: Right. So the the next steps are first we are continuing to raise volunteers and we're hopefully continuing to raise money. So any interested person listening to this podcast is certainly welcome to volunteer if they're an attorney or to give money to the AIRP. I will say that our fiscal sponsor is the American Immigration Council. And so the check goes to American Immigration Council uh, earmarked for the AIRP. But putting that aside for the moment, the next step is once that group is raised, they begin training, which we hope will take place in the next two weeks, And then within the next four weeks or so, we will actually have detention facilities selected where we will be sending our volunteers to work on the ground on removal defense cases. So I think that probably brings me to the point where I need to describe what's going on in today's world. So just this week, uh, the president issued a couple more of his executive orders that relate to immigration. And he's really planning a big push with what he calls removable criminal aliens. Now, he's given the number of 3 million such people, but there aren't 3 million such people. His figures, as is often the case with his figures, are just inaccurate. There is a number floating around of 2 million, but half of those have green cards, so they're not deportable. There are probably uh, 820,000 unauthorized immigrants who have been convicted of crimes. But of those, uh, a good number are so minor that generally that doesn't count. So there's probably about 650,000 people in the U.S. now who do have felony convictions or other misdemeanors. But that's not the limit anymore. Now, he says, he also wants to go after people who may be even suspected of a crime. So not only those who are actually convicted, but those that an immigration customs enforcement officer or the customs and border patrol officers, if they have any reason to even think that somebody might be a danger to society, then they can pick them up also uh, if they're undocumented. So that now means that based on mere society, Suspicion, not even a conviction, but a suspicion that somebody could be someone who might commit a crime. I mean, just think about that. And obviously, that could lead to abuses like racial profiling. That's the real worry. That was with such a vague definition of what is a criminal alien, not even a conviction, much less a major conviction, but somebody who you think might have criminal tendencies or might be a gang member or might be a terrorist. So, Let's go beyond that now and say all these folks are picked up, hundreds of thousands, maybe close to a million, on the theory that they either have a criminal conviction, no matter how minor, or they might be dangerous. Now they're sent off into a detention facility. And what we know is that if someone is detained, remains detained, can't make bond, and has a lawyer, that person is 10 times more likely to be able to stay than if they don't have a lawyer. So what the ICE is counting on, ICE again being Immigration and Customs Enforcement, is that people won't have lawyers and they'll be moved out quickly without any due process in an expedited removal proceeding and just sent out of the country. And if we can stop that by providing lawyers, the system will have to slow down, which is actually a better thing, because if you slow down, you might find that there's a real defense and you should be allowed to stay. Now, if a person is released on bond, they're no longer detained. They're called the non-detained. They are 20 times more likely to be able to stay if they have counsel. So it's very important to try to provide counsel to these people who are being swept up. Another thing that changed with the new executive orders is that under President Obama, the only ones who were in expedited removal were those who were found within 100 miles of the border who had been here less than two weeks because technically they were considered still in transit. But this has all been expanded now. Now it's going to be somebody found anywhere in the U.S. who has been here less than two years. And he's saying all of those people who are here less than two years, found anywhere in the U.S., don't even get a court hearing. They should be placed in expedited removal, too, where they simply are put in the detention facility, have a sort of quick kangaroo court hearing in the detention facility and are sent out of the country, quick, quick, no court, no due process. And that's an enormous change, enormous change. The only group that he hasn't really gone back on are the so-called DREAMers, which is the Deferred Action for Childhood Entrance. For that group, the acronym is DACA, he yeah, he seems to have some pity and he says he's not going after those uh, dreamers yet but he is going after their parents and if the parent actually assists the child and if that's a different group than dreamers but if a parent assists a child to come in there he actually wants to prosecute the parent for trafficking so oh so there's a lot of new material here where he says he wants to publicize crimes by undocumented immigrants he wants to strip those immigrants of privacy protections He wants to enlist local police officers as enforcers, which many cities are resisting that idea because it only causes a breakdown in police community relations. He wants to build new detention facilities, which he has to do because there aren't enough facilities, aren't enough beds to house the number of people that he wants to go immediately and pick up. So he wants to build these private prisons. And we know a lot about these private prisons. The conditions of confinement there are horrendous. There's often not any decent medical care. There are no phones or other communication facilities. Families don't even know where their people have been taken. And it seems to be almost part of the plan. Somebody can be picked up, let's say, in Philadelphia on the street and then sent to Georgia and then moved to Texas. And the family doesn't even know where they are. Neither does the lawyer. So this is all part of the system is to build these new facilities, which is great for, for the private prison business and their stockholders, He wants to discourage asylum. He wants to speed up deportations. And all this cries out to say, slow down. We need to have people have lawyers and have due process rights, which, according to our laws, these people who are here have due process rights, even if they're not yet citizens or documented.
0: It's really been heartbreaking to watch the news a lot. There was a recent story about a family... Uh, where the children were citizens, and the mom had, as you had mentioned before, some Mickey Mouse little tiny thing, and they shoved her out. I mean, it's just scary when you see these families just being—it's amazing. Now, we've been talking a lot about the lawyer's role, but what role do you have for— law students or younger people who are interested in helping on this? Are there opportunities for them to volunteer if they are not lawyers?
1: Um, It's a good question, and I'm not entirely sure of the answer. I know that law students is an easy answer because most law schools have a clinic working with immigration issues, and so the law students do sign up for those clinics and do terrific work. They have done work with removal defense. They've done work on asylum petitions. They've done work in naturalization and citizenship. And by the way, there are some defenses to removal that can be raised, such as sending someone back who has a fear of of being injured in the home country. That's a fear of return. And there's also something called the Convention Against Torture. If we know somebody's being sent back to be tortured, the Convention Against Torture doesn't permit that. So there are some defenses, and law students do work on writing those kinds of petitions or habeas petitions, things like that. So law students, there's definitely a role. For non-lawyers, I'm not quite as sure of the answer, but I understand that non-lawyers sometimes can be helpful with intake. They may be able to interview the folks who are picked up at the detention facilities and at least get the background facts very quickly. So there may be a role for non-lawyers to help with that too. One of the problems is that at the facilities there's no modern technology. They don't have video conferencing. They don't have cell phones or iPhones or iPads or something that people could use to have a Skype interview with a lawyer. And that's something I think we're working on. I met yesterday uh, with a woman uh, who's running a company called Law Toolbox, and she works with Microsoft, who has used her technology. What she talked about trying to do was to help us to have iPads brought into the facilities that Microsoft might donate so that at least you could do Skype interviews. If there were 10 iPads, maybe they could do 10 interviews at a time with different people who are swept in and facing removal in 10 days. The lawyer could interview them by Skype. So there's a tremendous need for technology here. And the tech community, which is a phrase you certainly know, Monica, very well, could step up and could help us here by providing some free assistance, such as the actual physical devices, but also uh, cloud-based technology that could help us track all of the cases of removal, where are the people, and what is the status of the case, and we, we could do a lot with them. So I just wanted to mention that, too.
0: Well, we're running out of time, and I want to spend a little bit more time on that wonderful word, money. And Uh one of the questions I asked you in my Above the Law column was, you know, what do you need for the money? You said something that really resonated to me, which is there's so many things that don't jump right out at you. For example, how do you support travel? How do you get to remote locations? The video conferencing you were just talking about and training markables you know getting food i mean there's so many things yeah if someone is interested whether they're a lawyer or a non-lawyer i'm going to give the address good. for wow, sending good. it to you if you don't mind good. Uh, if you wish to donate it's the american immigration representation project care of American Immigration Council. The address is 1331 G Street Northwest, Suite 200, Washington DC 20005. Is there a phone number that someone might be able to call or do they want just to to send?
1: Actually, I don't I don't have a phone number. Yet, but I would point out, just to be sure your listeners know, that that's a fully tax deductible. That is a 501c3. IRS has approved it as such, so it's important to note that because it's a question that we are frequently asked. But you did a great job of describing why we need donations. I know everybody's seeking donations these days because there's so many issues coming out of Washington that need lawyers and other volunteers to be involved in resisting certain policies, not just in the immigration area. So I know there's a lot of demands for money, but you did a great job of describing why this project needs money. It does need to fund attorney travel to remote locations. It does need to see if we can get video conferencing into every detention facility. We do need training materials and it costs money to do that online. We also want to do online supervision. So we need to set up Chat rooms and phone lines, things like that. So, and we will do, we also will do Know Your Rights programs at all the detention facilities, which you have to put a poster in, you have to explain, so there'll be written materials. So, of course, there's a need for funds, and I, I'm very appreciative that you uh, gave your listeners a careful and slow address there, so that if, if anybody <laughs> does want to contribute, it is very helpful to us.
0: If you're a lawyer, but you're not practicing immigration, this might be a great time to go to some of the association meetings that are coming up. The American Immigration Lawyers Association has a bunch of regional ones that are coming up very quickly. The Federal Bar Association is having a May 13th program in Denver. There is a calendar put out by the Immigration Advocates Network. There's a new one that I couldn't find too much information about, but it's I C I R L. 2017 the 19th international conference on immigration and refugee law so there's a lot of people out there and whether you are a uh, you know involved one way or the other whether you're a lawyer or someone who's just very very passionate about this there's a lot of resources there and I will turn it back over to you, Judge, for any final comments you would like to make.
1: Well, first of all, I, I've always prized accuracy, and I think I spoke inaccurately earlier in the broadcast, never too late to correct. So I used the word okay. two executive orders this week. They weren't executive orders, really. They were documents released uh, by the Department of Homeland Security, the DHS, and they explained all of the things that I said were in These recent executive orders, those weren't executive orders, but it comes to exactly the same thing. They're enforcement policies that came from DHS, and they did the things that I said, expanding the definition of criminal aliens and all of the rest of the things that I mentioned. So I think as a final wrap-up, I would only say that we do expect to see vastly increased numbers of deportation orders. They start with notices to appear, which means they are placed in removal. People are going to be picked up on very broad and flimsy grounds, as I said, not just prior convictions, but even suspected of activity. We're concerned about racial profiling. The president has used the word targeting Muslims, so we know that's part of his intent in any event. And the numbers are going to be high, and there's going to be a great need for counsel. I've already explained what a difference it makes to have counsel. So I can only summarize by saying I think this is very important work. And the more people who step up and volunteer uh, for our organization or any other organization, you know, we're all we're all together in this. There's no competition. So if somebody wants to work with the uh, American Immigration Law Associ- Association, which is ALA, or the ABA, which has a commission on immigration, or the Southern Poverty Law Center, or any one of the many groups, it's all fine with us. We just want to see volunteers and money poured into the effort to make our country what it really has always been, which is a refuge, a place where refugees can come to and can find safety and not remain in a place where they're endangered um, and just not safe and not free. We wanna be what America always was. So I hate to use the phrase (laughs) that the president uses, but to me, that's how we make America great, by remembering who we are and remaining true to our history and our principles. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity to be on this program and to explain why I'm passionate about this issue, why I care, and why I hope we all care.
0: Very beautifully said. Judge, if someone wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get to you?
1: Yes, thank you for that opportunity, too. My problem is I have the hardest last name to spell, and that's, of course, (laughs) my email address. So I'm going to do it very slowly and hope somebody can catch the spelling. I'm happy to get emails. The address is S S C H E I N D L I N, which is S Schendlin at Struck. Also hard to spell, S T R O O C K dot com. So it's S Schendlin at Strook dot com. I spelled as slowly as I could, but if I get emails, I will respond.
0: And if you didn't have your pencil there, you can email me. It's monicabay1, the number one, at gmail.com. So M-O-N-I-C-A-B-A-Y, the number one, at gmail. Thank you so much. I'm so excited about what you're doing. And you get the last, very last word before we say goodbye.
1: Well, I just want to, again, thank you, Monica, and thank the producer today for hosting us so that we have the opportunity to get our message out to as many folks as possible. So I'm grateful for the time and grateful for the exposure. Judge, thank
0: you again. And thank you very much for listening. And we hope you will be with us on the next edition of Law Technology Now. More information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network